Hi FM, your station of choice since 2008. Welcome to Soul to Soul right here on 101.9 Hi FM. I'm your host Rabbi Ari Kivman. This coming Shabbos is a very auspicious occasion on the calendar. It is the third of Tamas, which commemorates and marks 28 years since the Rebbe's passing. And as a shliach, as a chassid of the Rebbe, his presence is certainly felt stronger than ever. His teachings continue to inspire and guide us, and his insights remain as fresh and relevant as if these ideas were just taught today. Each of us truly is a beneficiary of the Rebbe's inspiration one way or another. Here in South Africa, we were blessed. The Rebbe said that this country will be good until Mashiach comes and even better after. In many ways, our lives are affected by the Rebbe's visionary leadership. And on the anniversary of a tzaddik's passing, all the light that he planted in this world, his teachings, his good deeds, everything in which he invested his life and being, all this shines so brightly so that anyone connected to him can receive blessings of life, happiness, and wisdom. This coming Shabbos, on the anniversary of the Rebbe's passing, I implore all of us, the entire community, to celebrate the Rebbe's vision. Let's honor his life's mission to bring goodness and kindness into the world. Let's do another mitzvah, one more good deed, to make this world a better place. You know, throughout history, us as a Jewish people, throughout our history, the holy resting places of the righteous have served as our spiritual oasis. The graves, the grave sites of our patriarchs and matriarchs, as well as those of our great sages, are viewed in our tradition as places of prayer and introspection and have provided solace to us for millennia. Even just last night, there was an incident at the gravesite of Yosef HaTzadik in Shechem, in Nablus, because the gravesites of our righteous patriarchs and matriarchs have always been places of inspiration, a place for a person to, to delve into deep prayer and introspection. And today, many people visit the Rebbe's holy resting place known as the Ohel each day, hundreds, thousands of people. Many people send in the requests for prayers and blessings if they can't come in person. And so, my friends, this is an auspicious time to send your letters and blessing requests. It's customary, of course, to commit, to add one more mitzvah, another good deed, something that one, a good resolution as a merit to receive God's blessings in the schus of the Rebbe and his holy life work. And so I strongly believe that our community is really blessed with a special soul connection to the Rebbe's spirit, his inspiration, to his Torah teachings. And as such, we're all uniquely empowered to enhance our individual spiritual potential. And so I implore you to make an effort to deepen your Yiddishkeit connections, to utilize the uniquely empowering opportunities for positive change on this special day that it provides us all. And of course, despite the challenges that we may be contending with, whether it's load shedding or emerging from COVID-19, whatever we might be going through individually, we have to strengthen our faith in Hashem and a God Almighty. And remember that this too is for the good. 
a very famous expression. The Rebbe constantly encouraged everyone to always strive to serve Hashem with joy and happiness regardless of our individual or communal circumstances. And he expected us to diligently toil at being happy, yet never becoming complacent or satisfied in our achievements. So, my friends, please, let's harness the auspicious power, the energy of this day, which will surely bring true nachas to the Rebbe's neshama on high and to actualize blessings here below for all of us. You can learn a lot more about the Rebbe on our website, chabadsadafagot.org forward slash Rebbe. And today I would like to dedicate our Soul to Soul segment here on 101.9 Chai FM to the Rebbe's teachings and inspiration. And I'd like to share with you in the 1960s, the Rebbe's secretary, his name was Rabbi Chadikov, he called over one of the yeshiva students at 770 Chabad World Headquarters with a unique mission. For this particular student, his name is Rabbi Asher Zeilingold, it wasn't the first time that he was being summoned to such a mission. The secretary, Rabbi Chadikov, had a letter in his hand and he explained that the Rebbe had received it from a woman who lives just down the road on Eastern Parkway and she wrote that she wanted her son to attend Yeshiva University, which I'm personally an alumni of that institution on the upper uptown Manhattan in the Washington Heights area, but she couldn't afford the tuition for her child and she therefore asked for the Rebbe's help. So Rabbi Chadikov instructed Rabbi Zeilingold, wasn't really a rabbi then, he was just a yeshiva boy, to visit this woman and find out exactly what she needed and to help her work it out. If she wanted a son to attend Yeshiva University, he, Rabbi Zeilingold, was to help her arrange just that, whatever it would require, whatever it would take. And he asked to see the letter to better understand the situation, but Rabbi Chadikov remarked that the letter was written in the garbled Yiddish of a Yiddish imame, and therefore it was difficult to understand. And he suggested that Asher take the letter to his own mother for interpretation. And exactly that is what Asher did. And Asher's mother was able indeed to decipher this woman's writing. And the main instruction that he received from Rabbi Chadikov was that the woman was not allowed to know under any circumstance where the money came from. He was to give her the money and she was to do with it as she saw fit. Asher thought to persuade her to send her son instead to the Chabad Yeshiva. But Rabbi Chadikov actually rejected that idea entirely. The woman requested she needs help, she needs financial assistance to send her son to YU and that's where he should go. Well, my friends, let's fast forward. Several years later, a group of students came to Crown Heights for a weekend known as Pegisha. These weekends still happen. Didn't only happen 60 years ago. It still happens today. It's a big weekend where college students come to listen to various rabbis and rabbitsons, teachers, work, attending workshops, lectures, various uh, events, um, that are prepared for them over this full weekend about Judaism and to get to spend this Shabbos in New York with the Rebbe. At one of the sessions, one of the speakers, Rabbi Zalman Posner, 
spoke to the students, and then he opened the floor for questions. And there was one student who stood up and he asked, why does Chabad only do things for itself? Well, Rabbi Zeilingold, who happened to be present at this event, he looked to see who asked the question, and it happened to be that it was the same student whose tuition had been paid for personally, sponsored by the Rebbe. Well, you can imagine, I'm not sure exactly what he, what he said to the student, but I think he had to set the record straight. And why am I sharing this story with you? Because as tomorrow night, the 3rd of Tammuz, the yard site, the 28th anniversary of the Rebbe's passing, this story sheds light on his personality. People often ask, what is a Rebbe? What makes him special? A Rebbe is someone who dedicates his entire life to others. He doesn't need and doesn't want the credit for himself. The most important thing that the Rebbe wanted was that this young man should have the Jewish education that he desires. Let me tell you a similar story about the previous Rebbe. In 1927, the previous Rebbe was arrested by the Bolsheviks for his effort to preserve Jewish life. In fact, next week, the 12th of Tammuz will be the anniversary of his liberation. And personally, I grew up hearing the story directly from my grandmother, who was one of the activists involved in all the work and activities of Chabad at that time. She was a young teenager, 1927, there in Russia. And she was present when this all happened. And she used to tell us firsthand stories of that experience. This, you have to understand, was in the early days of the Soviet Union, when they made every effort to stamp out all religious observance with a real special focus on Judaism. They considered the previous Rebbe's work counter-revolutionary activities, the, what, what Marx coined as the opium and the masses, and they really gave him a hard time. In fact, he was, he was meant to be executed. That was his, he was sentenced for execution, went through a very difficult time until he finally was liberated. And most rabbis and Jewish leaders concluded that there's no future for Judaism in Russia. They left the country in short order. But the previous Lubavitcher Rebbe, he realized that the majority of the Jewish population would remain there no matter what. And of all the other rabbis left, the entire population would be left to the forces of assimilation. And therefore, he remained behind. He established a whole wide network of underground Jewish institutions, schools, shuls, mikvahs, yeshivas. And like I said, my grandparents were very much involved. My father grew up in communist Russia. So I used to hear firsthand from my father as well as his mother, the stories, what life was like back then. And so the previous Rebbe dispatched these teachers and leaders to all corners of the Soviet empire where they taught Torah with tremendous self-sacrifice. And unfortunately, many of them were arrested and never seen again. In fact, when my father and his parents had to flee, it was not only because of the advancing Nazis towards Moscow where my father grew up, and this is the late 30s and early 40s, but also because my grandmother herself risked her life for these missions of the previous Rebbe, and they had to go when their life was truly at risk. The KGB knew exactly who was behind the operation. And one day they decided to put it to an end. And like I said, this is in 1927, late one night, a group of soldiers stormed the apartment in Leningrad in St. Petersburg, where the previous Rebbe lived. This is June 1927. 
and they searched for any incriminating evidence. They were there in the house for over two hours. My grandmother would describe to us with vivid imagery of what it was like being outside as the Chabadniks would hear about what's going on in the Rebbe's apartment. And after they collected enough, a whole trove of documents, the head of this operation approached the Rebbe and he said, in Yiddish, Rebbe, come with us. Now how did this guy, how did this KGB officer know Yiddish? The answer is a very painful one. This officer was a Jewish boy who had been raised in a traditional Jewish home, only unfortunately following the the, the, the spirit of the time, that what was the fad to join the Communist Party and rise in the ranks of the KGB. And he wasn't the only one, this young man, because there were many such individuals. In fact, the former chief rabbi of Moscow, of, of Russia, was Rabbi Yaakov Maza, the grandfather of world-famous comedian Jackie Mason. And they say he once mentioned to, to Trotsky in a meeting you know, Trotsky's former name was Label Brunstein. But when he became a communist activist, he himself also grew up in a traditional Jewish religious lifestyle, but sadly followed the fads of the time and rose very high in the ranks. So Rabbi Maza said to him, you know, it's the Trotskys who make the trouble and it's the Brunsteins who get the blame. Unfortunately, it was the Jews Many Jews who felt that need to demonstrate their extra fealty to the communist cause. And they were worse troublemakers in many ways than the ordinary KGB. This group called the Yivisekti. They persecuted Jews and the Jewish religion with more zeal and zest than their non-Jewish communist colleagues. And in the Rebbe's case, the two leading officers who actually, who, who arrested him and and persecuted him. They were actually children of Hasidic families. One his name was Nachmanson, and the other his name was Lulav. And it doesn't get more Jewish than that. Think about it. Their parents would have done anything the Rebbe asked them for, and here they were the ones arresting the Rebbe. And as they got ready to leave, the Rebbe prepared a small suitcase with several Sfarim, holy books that he needed. He included his talis and tefillin and whatever else, whatever other requirements, accoutrements that he needed. And he handed it to one of the soldiers. Lulav, the son and grandson of Hasidim, he jumped to take it from the soldier. Let me take your suitcase, he said. Hasidim, remain Hasidim, he says to the Rebbe. My grandfather carried your grandfather's suitcase. I'll carry yours. To which the previous Rebbe took back the suitcase and handed it again back to the soldier who wasn't Jewish. And to Lulav he said, your grandfather had the merit to carry the suitcases of my grandfather to where he wanted to go. You want to carry my suitcases to where you want me to go. And when he was brought into, in for these interrogations in a very famous prison in Leningrad called Spalerka, very notorious place where you could hear the gunshots, the execution of prisoners left and right. And he described it so vividly in his prolific writings, in his Likute Diburim, in his uh, memoirs. And he described very vividly what took place. And he informed the officers that he would only speak to them in Yiddish. He had a certain determination 
certain a certain um, he, he he felt that resilience and the strength where he was going to be very dafka in this case. And so the Rebbe and the former Chassa, this KGB interrogator, sat in the headquarters of the KGB offices and they had a whole conversation in Yiddish. And at first, the Rebbe was sentenced to execution, as I mentioned. They sentenced him to death, literally, for his counter-revolutionary activities. Later, they, the sentence was commuted to a three-year exile in the forsaken town of Kastrama. Actually, when I went to Russia some 20-something years ago to conduct a Seder, my cousin, I was sent off to a city called, um, I'm forgetting the name of the city I was sent off to, a, a really, Sizran, a very far off place in the Samara region. And my cousin, he was sent to Kastrama to conduct a Seder with his colleague for the Jews who happened to still be there so many years later. And there's no doubt that the Jews who happened to still be there and to who maintained any connection to Yiddishkeit it was thanks to this mission of the previous Rebbe and of people like my grandparents who were part of that mission, who risked their lives literally to save Yiddishkeit in that country. And it was on the 3rd of Thomas that the previous Rebbe left Leningrad for this exiled city of Kastama. It was only 10 days later that the Soviets released him under tremendous, immense international pressure, including from the US President Hoover at the time. And so this became a tremendous celebration on the Chabad calendar, the date, the 3rd of Thomas. Just to fast forward, of course, a few months later, he left the Soviet Union for good and settled in Riga, Latvia. After that, made his way to, to Poland, where actually the Rebbe got married in Warsaw. And uh, that's where he was until finally, eventually settling in America. In fact, he went on a world tour of Israel, soon to be established state of Israel in 1929, as well as to the US. So there was a lot that happened in between. But there was a Hasid living in Riga at the time, who was embarrassed to show his face to the Rebbe when the Rebbe arrived. You see, his name was Lulav. And it was his son, his own child, who had caused the Rebbe all that anguish, grief, and suffering during this period of his arrest in June. But when the Rebbe came there, he sent a message to Lulav that he holds nothing against him and he would like to actually see him. That was the Rebbe. Selfless, not about what this individual's son may have done to him. The Rebbe's care and concern was for each person individually. My friends, about 20 years ago, a Chabad rabbi at Harvard, Rabbi Herschel Zarchi, met a student at the university. He was an immigrant from Russia, and his name was Lulav. Sure enough, it was his own grandfather who had arrested the previous Rebbe, and he knew about his family history. And he was embarrassed to enter the Chabad house. But over time, the rabbi managed to break the ice. And he warmed up to Judaism. My friends, we'll be right back in a moment. And we'll discuss this and see its connection to this week's Torah portion. Stay tuned right here on Soul to Soul. IFM 101.9 megahertz of life.
My friends, welcome back to Soul to Soul here on Chai FM. And we were talking about stories as it is the weekend commemorating the 28th yard site of the Lubavitcher Rebbe. And so, as I shared with you, story about how the Rebbe's concern for a YU student and the previous Rebbe, how he held no grudges on Mr. Lulav, and you could see how the family reconnected to its roots back at Harvard University only recently. Well, there's a similar story in the behind the scenes of this week's Torah portion, the Parsha of Korach that we read this Shabbos. You see, it's quite a story. The mutiny of Korach. Korach complains to Moshe Rabbeinu. He says, everybody's holy. Why do you hold yourself above the people? We all heard God speak at Mount Sinai, he says to Moshe. Why are you better than anyone else? Why did Moshe get to become the leader and your brother Aaron, the high priest? Doesn't this sound like first-class nepotism? That's sort of what his complaint was. But that was only the official accusation. There was another reason as well. Karach was actually a first cousin of Moshe and Aaron. He couldn't bear watching his cousins lead the people while he remained a mediocre Levite. What, I have to be a, a, a chopped liver, a mediocre Levite? And therefore, he tried to provoke this rebellion. He ganged up with Dasan and Aviram, two very famous rebel rousers of the time, who were always ready to make some trouble. And everyone knows the end of the story as we read in our Parsha this week. The earth opened up, swallowed Korach and his entire crew. But there's a detail in the story that is actually less famous. The opening verse lists the leading troublemakers. There was Korach, there was Dasan and Aviram, and a fellow by the name of Oin ben Pelas. But very strangely, his name doesn't appear in the story again, nor does it appear anywhere else in the Torah for that matter. What happened to Oin ben Pelas? The Talmud says that when Mr. Oin came home, he told his wife about the planned rebellion against Moshe Rabbeinu, she gave him a piece of her mind. She said, in the competition of who will be the leader, it will be between Moshe Rabbeinu and Korach. You, my dear husband On, you don't count. You're not even in the equation. Why are you wasting your energy on someone else's battle? Of course, as always, the wife is right. And so Mr. On realized that it was a very foolish endeavor of his. But he promised his participation. What does he do? He wasn't sure how to, how does he extricate himself from the whole business? What does he do? It's a mess. So she said, don't worry about it. I'll work it out. And she plied him with wine so that he had a nice good sleep. During his snooze, she sat at the opening of their tent in an immodest manner. And when the rebellion crew came to pick him up, they were embarrassed to approach. They were forced to move on without him. This is what the Gemara tells us. What happened to him afterwards? Well, the Medrash tells us the continuation of the story. After the entire debacle was over, Mr. Ombempelis refused to leave his tent. He said, I'm ashamed to show my face to Moshe Rabbeinu. He tells his wife, what am I gonna say? I was part of the mutiny, the rebellion. It's only thanks to you that I managed to be extricated. You can imagine how he felt. Karach and the rest of them were lucky. They never had to face Moshe Rabbeinu ever again. But he, Ondan Pelas, was still alive. 
<laughs> to his dismay in a sense. He wasn't sure how he's going to show his face ever again. And again, his wife came to the rescue. She went to the tent of Moshe Rabbeinu. She began yelling and crying. Well, Moshe asked his, his uh, advisors, his closest men, go check what's the deal with this lady hollering, screaming, crying, shouting outside. And she told over the entire story. She explained that her husband, Un, was ashamed to show his face in public. Well, Moshe Rabbeinu was not insulted. He walked with her to her tent and he called on, called Mr. On to the doorway, said to him, not to worry, Hashem will forgive you. I certainly do. And I think in a sense, this is a characteristic of someone who is a tzaddik of a generation. He not only forgives the very person who sought to undermine his credibility, but even goes out of his way to extricate him from his embarrassment, from his shame. So with the yard side of the Rebbe this Shabbos, I think it's a very important lesson we could take from the Rebbe's personality, from Moshe Rabbeinu's character as a Moshe. In each generation, there's a Moshe Rabbeinu. And the Rebbe certainly fits that caliber of the character of Moshe Rabbeinu in our time. And let's encourage our friends and neighbors to be a little bit more involved in Judaism, to do an extra mitzvah, especially to help those who are, so to say, scared to show their face, to make sure that they feel welcome and part of our Jewish family. That certainly, if we take on the Rebbe's loving care and concern, then there's no doubt that one can definitely have that impact because we emulate the Rebbe's ways of loving, of caring, of being there for others during these their challenges. Speaking of Moshe Rabbeinu, there's certainly more lessons we can learn. You know, Manishtana is not just asked on Pesach. It, it's become a whole Jewish expression, a part of the, the slang in Israel and beyond. I know we have some Israeli guys who come to our shul, and whenever somebody experiences something, you know, they go, Manishtana, <laughs> what's different? Well, as we look at the parsha, and you, you, you look here in, in this story of Korach and say, Manishtana, you read about this mutiny of Moshe's cousin Korach, who, by the way, himself was a, a prestigious person. He was rich. He was important. And here he joins with Dasan and Aviram in this mutiny. Why is he joining with two shady characters who are always causing problems for Moshe Rabbeinu? And here they cause this trouble. Manishtana, you could say. You know, now, what is going on? When you look at the story of Korach's complaint, when he says the whole nation's holy, you know, why do you, Moshe, lift yourself, raise yourself above everyone else? Again, what's, what happened on that day that motivated Korach to challenge Moshe Rabbeinu's leadership? Moshe had been the Jewish nation's leader since their departure from Egypt. That's a year and a half before the story of Korach. And Moshe had arrived in Egypt at least six months before the Exodus, proving his leadership qualities time and time again. We know the ten plagues, the Exodus, the splitting of the sea, the giving of the Torah at Mount Sinai. I mean, that itself was the most important event of all. Everyone witnessed God himself speaking directly to Moshe Rabbeinu. So what happened that caused Korach to suddenly challenge Moshe Rabbeinu with, why have you made yourself elite? What new development happened here? 
And it's the same question with Aaron. Aaron had been the high priest at least since the Mishkan was erected at the beginning of the month of Nisan, which means that he had been the Kohen Gadol already for six months. So why is it that towards the end of, when we're reading this story in the, in the chronology, that all of a sudden Karach wakes up one day and just starts hollering, what do you guys think you are? <laughs> Did the desert heat get to him? What was the matter? I remember that many years ago, political commentators observed that the September 11 attacks saved the presidency of George W. Bush. Until then, he was a president with no agenda. He had no goal. He was elected president, but he didn't have a specific plan of what was going to, what he was going to accomplish. Yes, he would be president and he would try to do good things, but there was nothing more to it. Suddenly 9-11 happened. I remember that day like yesterday. I was there. And that gave him a goal, they claim. Overnight, George W. Bush transformed into the, the great anti-terror crusader, battling the axis of evil. I remember how we would say, we're going to smoke him out and bring him to justice. That's the way he put it himself, this axis of evil. And ever since that day, he had a specific mission and goal to save the world from terrorism. And perhaps it could be said, that as much as George W. Bush saved the world from terror, terror saved the career of George W. Bush. Now, not to compare Lahavdul Elif Abdullah's Moshe Rabbeinu to George Bush, but the same essential story happened to Moshe Rabbeinu, just in precisely the opposite order. Moshe Rabbeinu had three specific missions that comprised his leadership taking the Jews from Egypt, which he accomplished spectacularly, the giving of the Torah at Mount Sinai, at which he brought the Jews to the mountain where God revealed himself to everyone, issued the Ten Commandments, and Moshe brought the da- the, down the, the two tablets from on high. But most important of all, bringing the Jews to the land of Israel, to the promised land flowing with milk and honey, those were Moshe Rabbeinu's three main missions. And then everything fell apart. First, the spies returned from Egypt, returned from Israel, you know, spying the land we read in last week's Parsha. That was Tishabav. They claimed that it was impossible to conquer the land. Everyone complained, they fetched. So God decreed that the Jews would remain in the desert for the next 40 years. They complained about nothing. They had something then to complain about with only the next generation entering the land under the leadership of Joshua and Yeshua, they learned that Moshe himself would die before entering the land. And it's true, Moshe no longer had a mission as a leader. That was it. His career was over. His primary target was the introduction of the Jewish people into the Holy Land. And now it seemed like it was not going to happen. And that's why Korach came along and asked, why have you made yourselves elite? As Dasan and Aviram said very explicitly to Moshe, not even to a land flowing with milk and honey have you brought us. In other words, you're not the one who will be bringing us to the land of Israel. And indeed we see that after the whole saga of the spies, nothing new happened in the desert. From that point until the end of the 40th year in the desert, there was no news. As Rashi comments at the beginning of the book of Dvarim, from the sending of the spies until now, 
the phrase Hashem spoke does not appear, but rather the phrase God said, which teaches us that for the 38 years in which the Jews were rebuked, the divine voice did not connect to Moshe Rabbeinu in the same loving way, face to face as it was before. Rashi's explanation comes actually from the Talmud, the Gemara Masechet and Baba Kama, which tells us that after the sin of the spies, God did not speak to Moshe Rabbeinu face to face because the Jewish people were nizufim heim, meaning they were rebuked or unwanted before God. That's why Moshe didn't get the same access to God as he did before. Only at the end of the 40 year period, five months before his passing, did God resume speaking to Moshe Rabbeinu face to face. Now this doesn't mean that Moshe had no connection with God to God up those 38 years, God forbid. Rather, it means that it was no longer the same communication, the same connection that he previously experienced. God now spoke to Moshe Rabbeinu the way he did with all the other prophets, with a vision in the night or through an angel or through the Urim Batumim, a mystical document that was inside the chest plate worn by the high priest, but not the same open dialogue that Moshe Rabbeinu had at the beginning. So again, we see that from the decree that Moshe would not enter the land and onwards, it just wasn't the same. Obviously, he was the leader and he remained Moshe Rabbeinu, but it wasn't it. Well, it's like a big surgeon whose medical license is revoked. How would that surgeon feel? Yes, he could still serve as an advisor. He could open some other business. He could do a thousand other things, but he's not the same person he was before. His life is now divided into two parts, before and after. Without his license, he's lost that primary mission in life. My friends, as we discussed about the previous Rebbe before, that I will share with you in a moment a little insight about his experience while he sat in prison. And as I told you, my grandmother used to relate to us many of the experiences of that time period as she was there. His pain at being unable to, to write letters to his Hasidim. And the difficulty at that time was, was very, very difficult. And the Rebbe, our Rebbe, he asked, but he could have put on tefillin. You know, at that time, they took away his tefillin from him. So our Rebbe asked, but he could have put on tefillin with the same hand. I'm sorry. And so the question that the Rebbe was asking was, why was it that the previous Rebbe's felt so bad that he couldn't write during that time? And he explained that even though he could do other mitzvahs, such as putting on tefillin, the Rebbe was explaining that for the previous Rebbe, his mission was to help his fellow Jews. And at that moment, he wasn't able to do so. And so he felt like his hand had no use compared to his primary mission of spreading Judaism, everything else, as good as they may have been had no place whatsoever. In order not to lose one's medical license, a surgeon has to perform a specific minimum number of surgeries per year. In order not to lose his legal license, a lawyer has to participate in a minimum number of classes, right, CPD or CLE, whatever one's specific requirements are. And in order for us not to lose our licenses as parents, as teachers, as members of the community, we have to serve as role models. We have to make sure that we 
fulfill our purpose, our mission. We're here to do what we need to. And so it's incumbent on us to further our self-improvement by going to Torah classes, just like a surgeon needs to perform that number of surgeries, of operations each year. And we have to do whatever it takes to maintain our Jewish license, so to say, to be more physically active, involved in our mitzvah observance. But not just not to lose our licenses, but in order to become the best Jews we can. My friends, as we commemorate the Rebbe's site this weekend, let us utilize this opportune, auspicious time to remember his life, work, and mission, which was to make the world a better place. Each one of us can certainly have that impact and inspiration on all those around us. Wishing you all a pleasant, special, and meaningful Shabbos. Carpe diem.